Negotiations are tough for most of us, and they're especially challenging when we go into them, knowing that the other side has the advantage. On this episode, how to negotiate when the other party has power. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 416. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. All of us find ourselves in the situation of needing to negotiate. It's one of the reasons we've talked about this many times on the show before. And of course, we also find ourselves in the situation where the person we're negotiating with, regardless of context, has more leverage, power, or authority. It's a tough situation to be in, and yet it is a reality we all navigate, at least occasionally. I'm so glad to welcome back to the show today, Kwame Christian is going to help us to figure out some really practical ways to handle this tough situation. Kwame is a business lawyer and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. His TEDx talk, Finding Confidence in Conflict, was the most popular TED talk on the topic of conflict in 2017. He's working extensively today with procurement departments within companies to help them make better deals. Kwame hosts the top negotiation podcast, Negotiate Anything, and is the author of the book, Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Find Confidence in Conflict. Kwame, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Dave, it is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you back. This is your third time on the show. I didn't share this with you, but we did an audience survey recently, or maybe I did mention this to you, and a couple people wrote in and said, more Kwame. <laughs> we want him back. So here you are, <laughs> delivered. Hey, so this is this is a situation that you run into with clients a lot who show up in your workshops and show up when you're teaching procurement organizations, which is running into the situation where someone else that they're negotiating with has more leverage, more power. I'm curious, what are some of the situations where you see this happening? So within procurement, those are the departments where they're tasked with acquiring all of the contracts for the company. So they're negotiating deals all the time. And one of the biggest problems they have is the situation where they're dealing with a supplier and the supplier knows that they are the only supplier in the industry. And when you are in a situation where you're single sourced like that, they have a lot of leverage over you because you are lacking in alternatives. So sometimes what happens is the supplier will say, listen, we are going to raise the price. And if you don't agree to the price increase, we will stop shipping this particular thing to your company. Uh, so it's almost like a hostage situation. Yeah. And so in that situation, people feel that power and leverage all over them and they feel the need to concede. And so that's one of the biggest challenges they face. For those who have been in this situation, I, I, like they're hearing you say that and nodding like, yeah, I've been there. I know how hard that is. For those who haven't been in a situation like that, what is it about being in that situation that you find so difficult, not only in your own experience, Kwame, but the people you work with? So we are only as strong as our weakest option. And in this situation, there are no apparent alternatives. It doesn't seem as though we have any options. And so it creates this feeling of a complete lack of autonomy. 
where the, the choice is not in our hands. The other co- the company is dictating what will happen, and we feel as though we have no choice but to go along with it. And so that is really the biggest issue. It's not just the fact that it, it results in a material loss for the company, but also the process doesn't feel good. The powerlessness that's associated with this type of situation is, is particularly difficult to deal with. And so that's why this keeps coming up as a major issue for people in negotiation. So two things I'm hearing you say there. One is just the business realities of not having a lot of options, but also just the emotion that comes with that of not feeling like you're in a situation where you have a lot of agency on which direction you can potentially go or options, like you said. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. And this is not the only place this shows up, company to company, of course. I know when you're working with people, you also run into this just within an organization, right? Depending on different power dynamics and trying to influence uh, within the politics of an organization, right? Absolutely. And and that's one of the things that's really fascinating about negotiation and conflict resolution is that you can see this everywhere. So, of course, I work with procurement folks, but again, it applies in these everyday interactions between colleagues at work. And I think the, the best corollary comes from the situation where you might have somebody who is outranking you. They are in a position where within the company, they have a higher position. And you might want to institute some kind of change or offer some suggestions, but the person, they hold all the cards, or at least seems as though they hold all the cards. And that puts you in a tough situation because it seems like, well, again, I don't have any power in this situation. All I can do is is ask, and then it's completely within their control as to what happens. And so that is the best corollary where it's someone who outranks you within an organization. So a bunch of different contexts for what this can show up. One of the things that I know you teach a lot is being able to prepare effectively, especially if you're going into a situation like this where someone else does have more leverage or more power. Tell me more about that. What kinds of things are you teaching people to do to prepare going into a situation like this? Yeah. And and quick note in favor of preparation. I think this is one of the unsung heroes of effective negotiation. I was reading a book recently and they gave a statistic where they said they broke people up into groups and in the control group, they just had them negotiate. But in the experimental group, they had them take some time and systematically prepare for their negotiation. And so the difference between the control group and the experimental group was that number one, the experimental group was able to create 11% more value for themselves in the negotiation just by preparing. And then the second point that they were able to find that was really fascinating, I think even more fascinating than the first one, was that the experimental group was able to create 6% more value for the other side during the negotiation. And so not only does preparation help you, but it also puts you in a better position to help other people solve their problems through collaborative negotiation. And so when it comes to your ability to prepare for this particular situation, one of the things that it gives you is confidence. Because in these situations, especially where it feels as though somebody is leaning heavily on the power dynamic, on the leverage to get you to make concessions that are not in your favor, It creates an emotional trade. They're banking on an emotional exchange that isn't in your favor. They want you to exchange emotion for substance. So you're under pressure and they want you to give up something substantively in return for 
<laughs> emotional peace and stability. And so if you take the time to prepare, it'll make it easier for you to manage your emotions in the conversation because you have a better understanding of what you're going to do and say during the conversation. And if things don't work out, what happens next? Because I think one of the biggest concerns that people have is the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen during the conversation. We don't know what's going to happen after the conversation. And a significant amount of confidence can be gleaned simply through preparation and getting a better understanding of what happens next. So you're able to prepare and have the conversation at a much higher level. I have a feeling this is so key. So let's dive in on this a bit. Because last time you were on, we talked a lot about what to do within the conversation, right? And I love your mm-hmm. analogy of bringing the lantern into the dark room and illuminating more so you discover more. But I don't think we talked much about preparation. And it's great to know, by the way, that the the research behind it is solid, that preparation does help. And yet I think that for a lot of folks, especially if they don't do this every day, they don't know necessarily what to do to prepare because you could spend a lot of hours preparing, but not necessarily that be valuable. When you're teaching people how to prepare, what are the kinds of things they should be doing before going into the situation? Well, what I suggest doing, first of all, is having a systematic approach. And so when I say systematic, I mean that you go through a specific checklist every time so you don't miss things. And so I have a free guide that you can give to your audience. If they go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide, G-U-I-D-E, they can get a free negotiation preparation guide that can walk them through it. And um, this is something I still go through as an, an, as an attorney when I'm negotiating with opposing counsel because I don't want to <laughs> overlook anything. And so just simply having something that you can go through in order to gather information in a a coherent way will help you significantly in these conversations. So it's not just figuring out what your overall strategy for the relationship is going to be and the specific tactics that you plan to use in this specific conversation, but it also includes the research that you need to know or need to have in order to be fully prepared. And so what you're going to do is during the research process, you're going to recognize that there are going to be gaps in your understanding, making calls, doing online research, reading. It can only give you so much. There are going to be some points of information that are located solely within the confines of the mind of the other side. And so once you get a good understanding of what's out there in your research, and then you get a good understanding of the gaps in your understanding and based on the research then it guides the questions that you ask in the difficult conversation. And so it goes back to what you were talking about with the light theory of negotiation. The research can help to illuminate the room to a certain extent, but then we have to ask open-ended questions during the conversation to turn on the rest of the lights. And that shows how the research and preparation process can funnel directly into what you do and say during the negotiation. That's awesome. So thanks for making the guide available to us. First of all, I'll link up to it for everyone. And what's an example of something that's on that guide that people may miss or don't think about doing or at least or don't do to the extent that they probably should leading up to that conversation? Oh, yes. So we think about the research as it relates to the company. We think about research as it relates to the deal in general and then the specifics of this particular deal. But one thing we often forget to research is the other person, individually, as a human, (laughs) as a human being. And I'll give an example. 
One time I was negotiating the sale of a business and I did a, a ridiculous amount of research, but I'm so glad that I did it. I wanted to get to know the, the person on the other side. And so this guy had a website and it was one of those websites that, you know, nobody goes on to the website except the person who wrote it and the bots who wrote the, write those spam comments. Uh, so it had like a yeah. hundred comments, but all spam. And so nobody else read it, but I did. And so I went back and read every single blog post to 2013, to the beginning of the blog on that website. And so I discovered a few things. First thing was strategically, he was somebody who played football in high school and his coach was a mentor to him. He had a lot of respect for his coach. So I recognized that if I'm ever having trouble making a point, using a football related analogy would be helpful because he would it would be easily absorbed uh, based on his past experiences. That's one thing tactically that I got from that. Another tactical thing was something that was more defensive in nature, not something that I wanted to do, but something that I knew I shouldn't do. So when I'm establishing rapport with people, one of the easiest ways for me to establish rapport is with my son. I have a three-year-old. He's really cute. Other people who are parents, they can relate to the three-year-old stage. So we can talk about parenthood. It's a club. You know, so when you are when you're trying to connect with people, finding those points of commonality help persuasively and it helps to establish rapport and create that human connection. So I knew that he had a daughter who was uh, going into college soon. But through the blog, I realized that he had a son who died in infancy around the same age that Kai was. And so if. I would have started that conversation talking about how excited I was for my baby son. And I didn't know that history that would have caused some emotional damage. And I would never have known why he shut down. And so that helped me to know what to avoid because I changed the way I would have approached the conversation based on the information I got through the research. I think there's probably some people who will listen to that and even hear your advice in your teaching and say like, gosh, you know, I I could see how that'd be valuable. And yet at the same time, I don't want to be stalking people and like trying to uncover all kinds of information about them online. When you hear that from folks, how do you approach that? And how do you approach that personally when you're going into a negotiation where you, you maybe can go online and find out a bunch about someone? Yeah, for me, it's respect. Because if I go into a conversation with somebody and I can tell that they did their research on me, I feel validated. (laughs) I feel like, oh, they took the time to look me up. And so for me personally, I don't take it as offensive if I know somebody did their research on me. And on the other side, I can definitely see why at times it might feel uncomfortable looking up personal information. I'm just talking about things that are publicly available, like LinkedIn, social media, blog posts, those type of things. And one of the things that I like to think about too, if there is a situation where I might say, am I taking this too far? With the things that I look up being publicly available, the stuff that I look up, they had to have intentionally put that out there (laughs) about themselves. And so it's information that they are comfortable with the world knowing. And so if they are comfortable with the world knowing, then I feel comfortable using it to get to know them better. Now, if it's a situation where you say to yourself, I'm not that concerned about success to that extent, so I'm not willing to do that, then I I can't really combat that. 
But for me, the things that I'm discussing, the things that are important to my clients from a business perspective, especially legally, it's worth that extra investigation to make sure that I put them in the best position for success. Well, and to reinforce your point, I often find myself going to people's LinkedIn profiles, particularly if someone comes across my radar screen as a guest for the show or a business contact in some way that I haven't had a connection with prior. It is really fascinating how much a lot of people do put online, and I do as well. And I find that it's a rare case that I can't find some point of connection or similarity between us just from a LinkedIn profile of what's publicly available as a starting point to a conversation of like, oh, interesting, we both lived in the Midwest or something like that, that oftentimes is a really, at least a good starting point for a conversation, if not you know, going further than that. And it seems like a little bit of work here can go a long way on framing what you're walking into, right? Exactly, exactly. One of the other tactics that you really encourage people to be thinking about, especially in the situation where someone else has the upper hand in a negotiation, is to find your own sources of power. Tell me what you mean by finding your own sources of power. Right. And so sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in the obvious. So for instance, let's go back to that situation with the supplier. In that situation, the obvious source of leverage comes from the fact that they are the only option for you. That is a major source of leverage that should be addressed. And going to the um, within the workplace office politics type of scenario, the obvious advantage is the person who has a higher rank than you. That's the obvious advantage. But there are multiple sources of power when it comes to negotiation and social dynamics. Think about the social proof that comes with the fact that other people on your team believe the same thing or want to make the same change. If you are within an office and your leader wants to do things one way and you want to do things the other way, then because of rank, that person's going to win. But if the leader wants to do things one way and then 10, 20, 30 other people want to do it your way, then that is a source of power. When it comes to the procurement situation, if you take a step back, you think about this in terms of the long-term relationship with the company. We understand that business scenarios change. So you're not always going to be the only supplier. That could change. And so if you are willing to make some adjustments just for the sake of the relationship, when those dynamics do change, it makes us more likely to stick with you when those situations do come up. If a competitor comes into the market, we're more likely to stick with you because we'll remember that you were willing to work with us. Because one of the strategies that you can use, especially in the procurement context, is if the other side is leveraging you because of the fact that they're the only supplier in the industry at the moment, what you would want to do is maybe strategically you have to give them the concession in the moment. But As soon as you see that they have the capacity and the willingness to to leverage you in that way, you need to start looking not only for domestic solutions, but also international solutions. So the, the search is on for alternatives, even if they're not readily apparent. And so there are other reasons for them to make that adjustment because there are multiple sources of power and relationship, a strong relationship with a big company is a source of power. When you have seen someone do that well, of really finding some alternative sources of power. 
And like you said, it's it's not to negate the obvious power imbalance, but it's to bring in more to the table, right? Mm-hmm. What what have you seen that's really worked well on that? I like the way that you said it uh, with regard to bringing more to the table because it's rooted in creativity. They don't flex their alternative source of power in a way that could trigger a combative response where it says, "Okay, well you think you have power in this way, well, I have power in this way, so it it seems as though it's a direct threat to whatever it is that they're requesting. Creativity is the key. And so there's a reason why they're doing this. There has to be some reason for the change, whether it is internal pressure to get better deals for the the sales rep or an actual change in the market. There's something behind the new request. And so we need to go in with a spirit of curiosity and ask questions. We can't go in with assumptions thinking that we already know what the situation is on the other side. And uh, for the people who listened to the last two episodes with me, they will not be surprised that I talk about the the power of open-ended questions in this situation because we need to gather more information to figure out what the issue is on their side. Because if it's a situation where they're getting pressure to make better deals, better deals don't just come from one part of the deal the the money per let's call it widget right but there's also value in a longer term contract so we could say all right well you want more money per widget how about we keep the exact same price but we make it a longer contract that puts you in a position for you to take this deal back to your company as a win because now even though you might not be getting more money per widget you have a lot more security into the uncertain future Uh, because we've strengthened the relationship going forward. And so by asking more questions, figuring out what those concerns are, it opens you up to the ability to create more creative solutions that meet their needs without sacrificing yours. It's fascinating what you said about creativity and unequal value, because I think about the situation we've been discussing of where you have a situation where there is unequal power, right? And how you approach that and what you may or may not do to give into threats or even aggression from the other side. And I'm guessing you've run into this too, where it seems to me I often find that when I'm having conversations about this with others, by the way, it's so easy to recognize this in others and to totally miss it yourself. <laughs> like <laughs> yep. We get in these situations and negotiating, but I find that, and I'm sure I do this as well too, that I'm, and I, I see others do this too, a very quick to assume that the other side wants something that's really valuable to me and to go in offering that as an opening offer of saying like, okay, well, I know you probably care a lot about price, so I will do this for you on price before I've even really verified that that's the case. Do you run into that with with people too, where you find them maybe making that error? Yes, absolutely. And it's very human because we are designed to notice the negative before the positive. And so in ambiguous situations, we're more likely to interpret those situations negatively. And so because we are thinking one, two, three steps ahead in a very negative fashion, (laughs) we're moving pieces that don't need to be moved yet. Because what's happening is we say, oh, they don't like our price. They're going to push back on our price. And when they push back on our price, we're going to say this. You know what? Let's start the conversation just saying this. No, 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 no. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. When it comes to concessions, there are two things to keep in mind. 
Uh, you want to make sure that you're able to give the appearance that it costs a lot to you, while at the same time letting the other side have the satisfaction of feeling that they worked hard for it, to feel like they've earned it throughout the negotiation process. And so think about the situation that you're married to. So think about this. Imagine if you come home and you give your wife a flower and she says, oh, where'd you get this flower? And then you say, hey, I found it right outside and I thought of you and I gave it to you. Well, that's nice. Now think about that versus, well, I was uh, driving home and on the other side of the highway, I saw this flower. So I exited, went on to the other side of the highway, got the flower exited again to get back on this direction to bring home this flower to you. It added another 30 minutes, but I, I really wanted to give this to you. So which flower is worth more? Yeah, the second one, right? It, exactly, because it costs something to you and they can appreciate the cost it had to you. And so during the conversation, you anticipate what they're going to say beforehand and then you come up with a concession strategy before the conversation. And during the conversation, you concede according to plan. And you let them know that what you are giving costs you something, number one, and you want them to work for it. And so when you give that concession, the goal is to receive a reciprocal concession in return. Because if they feel like they worked for it and it caused you a little bit of pain, then they're going to be more willing to give you something in return. That's how you really trigger reciprocity in your negotiations. So this is where this goes beyond just thinking about things from a standpoint of a dollar amount, because there's as much psychology in this as there is money, perhaps even more so, because it's not just about the dollar amount. It's also about the journey to get there, which leads back to what you've taught us so many times of taking the time to slow down, engage, listen to people, ask curious questions, build a relationship, right? Because if you have that, then you are going on that journey with them versus this is just a transactional conversation, right? Exactly. And and going back to studies, what they found is that in one control group, they had what was a fair offer based on the market price, but the mar- the, the offer didn't wiggle at all. So they give the offer, the person tries to move it a little bit, they say, nope, this is a fair offer based on market price, take it or leave it, they accept the deal. In the experimental group, what they had the people do was start off with a high anchor, which is asking for above market price, and then have the other side work to negotiate down. On average, that uh, deal in the second group was for a higher dollar value than the first group. So technically, the people in the first group who were given the fair offer with no negotiation got better deals. But what they found is the people in the second group were more satisfied because they had to work for it. And after the fact, they could see, hey, we started here and then we ended here as a result of my negotiation prowess. So even if the deal wasn't as good, they felt better about it. Can I just say here too, as an adjunct to this, that as well as I know this, and I've heard you say it so many times, how I fall flat uh, when I'm thinking about something negotiating myself. I just had a situation come up in the last <laughs> couple of weeks, Kwame, where as many times as I've heard you say this, I was walking into a situation, it was a negotiation, and I was going in with the intention of, I'm going to offer something first because I think this is what the other party would want. And it was a pretty significant thing for me to offer. And I literally stopped myself. <laughs> <laughs> and had to consciously like, wait a second. 
you can't go, you can, but don't offer that right off the bat. Yes, be prepared. And like you said, have a concession strategy, like knowing this is where I would go if and when this comes up. But it was just within a few minutes before the conversation that I thought, wow, I should probably be more curious and ask a few questions first. And Kwame, it made all the difference. It turned out the thing I was going to basically give away made absolutely no difference to the other party at all. Like, I was completely surprised. And had I offered it, I mean, they would have taken it and it wouldn't have mattered to them. And it would have been a big deal for me. And on the one hand, like it was a good success. And on the other hand, I'm like, as many years as I've learned how to do this, and you've coached me on this, how easy it is to fall into those bad habits. Please tell me you find yourself doing this too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Make me feel I better. <laughs> do. I do. I do. What I say when I feel this is that my humanity is showing. That's all it is. Uh, our, hum- our humanity is showing. We're designed for this as in failure in difficult conversations. <laughs> and so I feel the same emotional pulls that everybody else does. And so the thing that I do when I start to feel this is, like I, like I said before, and you've mentioned too, is we need to slow down. That's the first thing that I do. And then I ask myself, what would you tell one of your podcast listeners to do in this situation? What would you tell them to do? Because it slows me down and forces me to think a little bit more strategically and intellectually about it because otherwise I'm thinking emotionally about it. I get that deal bias and I say, no, I want to get this deal. I'll, I'll sacrifice whatever it takes to, <laughs> to get this deal done. Then I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's slow down a bit. I appreciate you saying that because when we do have that emotional involvement in something, get some input from other people who maybe are not as quite as emotionally tied into it. I know Bonnie's really good at doing that for me of whenever I'm going to a situation like that where there's a bit of emotion for me, as I'll often ask her input and she always sees it clearer than I do. And I, and she'll say like, well, she'll say something I'll think like, well, I know that. And then I'm thinking like, yeah, but I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> Right. Yep. Because I forget because we get caught up in our emotions, right? Yeah. It's really great to have somebody close to you to bounce ideas off of in that regard. uh, Sometimes I just ask, am I thinking clearly here? (laughs) Because that's the thing about emotions is that a lot of times they're there, but you don't notice them or you're too arrogant to admit them. And so it it clouds our judgment and affects our strategy and we don't even recognize it. So being able to bounce those ideas off somebody who's willing to give you clear feedback is, is incredibly valuable. In addition to bouncing it off someone else, are there things that you find are helpful to people in these tough situations to be able to manage and put the emotions in the proper context in these situations? Yeah, there's a level of self-awareness that's required in order to regulate yourself emotionally. You have to be willing to recognize what emotions you're feeling and when you're feeling them. In the preparation stage, this is something that you should do. You should do an emotions audit. Figure out how you feel about the situation so it doesn't surprise you at the negotiations table. I think that is something that's incredibly powerful, but often overlooked by people when it comes to these conversations. And when you say emotions audit, what kind of thing would someone do that would kind of take them through that audit process? So I would start by saying, what am I feeling and why? And just be honest about it. Because you're going to feel something. Even if it's not something negative, you're going to feel something. And it's important to recognize that if you're feeling positively about something, that's something that needs to be addressed because typically people think less critically 
when they feel positively uh-huh. about situations. So in a really great book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, he had a study where he had people broken up into two groups. They had one group of people edit a document, and then they had the other group of people edit the exact same document. But here was the difference. In one group, they told the people to edit the document with their eyebrows down in a frown or a scowl with that expression on their face. And then in the other group of people, they told told them to edit the document while holding a pencil in their mouth. And the reason they had them hold the pencil in their mouth with their teeth was because it faked a smile. And so there's that biofeedback that comes with a smile. And when you hold a smile for about 17 seconds or so, it makes you actually feel better. And so what they found is that the people who were making the scowling face were able to find significantly more errors than the people who were forced to to make the, the smiling face. And that shows that people who are in better moods are less critical. And so you see people who are in good moods or very excited about the opportunity in front of them. They are more likely to make agreements quickly and concede quickly because they want the deal to happen and they're not thinking critically. So negotiating while happy is dangerous for other reasons when compared to negotiating while upset or angry. Oh, fascinating. So it goes back to what you said earlier of the importance of doing due diligence and preparation and research and all of that too, because that gets you grounded a little bit more in logic and takes you out of the just like, how do I feel going into the situation a lot more? Exactly. And, and once you get a better understanding of what you're feeling, then you get a clearer understanding of the information that's in front of you through the preparation process because the the data by itself is agnostic but our interpretation of it isn't so there're going to be biases either way <laughs> if it's a positive bias or a negative bias there is going to be a bias when we filter the information through our minds and that bias is going to impact the way that that information is perceived which then has an impact on our strategy and the tactics that we use in the negotiation, which has an impact on the way we perform. So in order to truly interpret the information effectively, we need to have an understanding of what's going on inside of us so we can figure out where the biases lie so we can get a clear understanding of, of the information. All right. Well, speaking of strategy and tactics, you have a ton of them that are in your TED Talk, which we'll link to here in the show notes. Also, your book, which we featured last time, Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Find Confidence in Conflict, a ton there. And of course, the podcast too, Negotiate Anything. And you're working a ton with procurement organizations now in large organizations. So for those of you who are in that boat, all those resources are just wonderful starting points for you to get better at this. Kwame Christian, host of the Top Negotiation Podcast, Negotiate Anything. So grateful for your time and your wisdom, Kwame. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. Related past episodes to my conversation today with Kwame include episode 262, Negotiating as if your life depended on it. My guest was Chris Voss on that episode. Chris is the former international chief hostage negotiator for the FBI. In that episode, he talked in detail of some of the negotiation tactics that he used in hostage situations. More importantly for us, how some of those very same principles can be 
utilized tactically in some of the most difficult situations that we handle. A great complement to today's conversation. Again, that's episode 262. Also valuable to you will be episode 311, Negotiation Tactics for Results. That was Kwame's previous appearance on the show. And in that episode, we talked in some detail about in the midst of conversations, what you can do in order to have what Kwame calls compassionate curiosity of being able to learn more, to explore, to ask questions and not make assumptions as many of us tend to make in negotiations. We talked a little bit about that today. And if you didn't already hear that episode, it is a fabulous compliment to today's conversation. Again, that's episode 311. A whole bunch of people in our community have told me how helpful that was and uh, some of the tactics that Kwame recommends. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 353, Enhance Your Self-Awareness. My guest was Daniel Goleman on that episode. Daniel, of course, uh, really has done so much of the foundational work on emotional intelligence in the last several decades. And in that episode, we talked about one of the foundational principles of emotional intelligence, which is self-awareness. And as you heard in today's conversation, emotional intelligence and self-awareness is so important for us to be aware of when we're entering into situations of negotiation because a lot of emotion comes up for us personally and then of course with the other party, especially in a situation where there's a power imbalance. And episode 353 with Daniel is really a great way to start examining how you can become more aware of your own self-awareness and build the building blocks for better emotional intelligence. And of course, the great thing about emotional intelligence that the research continues to show is that there is a lot we can do to get better at it if we're willing to take the steps to focus on it. All of those past episodes are available on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership, it is going to give you access to all of the past episodes since 2011, searchable by topic. One of the topic areas is negotiation skills. You'll be able to pull up all of the past episodes that we've ever aired on negotiation, including every topic on the website. Included in that also is the weekly leadership guide that comes your way every Wednesday on email. It includes everything that I found in the last week that will be helpful to you. Well, I shouldn't say everything I found. (laughs) I do a lot of curating. It includes the most important things I found in the last week that I think will be helpful to you. Other podcasts, videos, articles out there that will continue to contribute to your leadership development. It's also going to give you access to all of my book notes and highlights from the books that I've reviewed for the show. One of those books is uh, Kwame's book, Nobody Will Play With Me. We talked about that more on the last conversation. My notes are on the uh, on the show notes for this page, but also within the free membership. So check all of that out. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, and you'll be off and running with that and so much more. See you next week for our monthly question and answer show. Have a great day. Take care.